How are you all this morning? I hope you and your families had a good Thanksgiving time together over this holiday week. Over the past two months, Pastor Nick has been leading us through a series on discipleship through the Gospels, highlighting important portions of the Gospels for teaching and training believers to be grounded disciples of Christ. And last week, I tried to lay the foundation of the doctrine of Scripture and how we ought to approach the Gospels that we desire to teach others. So this week, we're getting to a specific passage of the Gospels that I think is one of the most important sections to go over with people at the beginning of the discipleship process, or perhaps even those who are seriously considering converting to the Christian faith. With me, if you will, Luke 14. Luke 14, starting in verse 25, and let's stand for the reading of God's word. Luke 14, 25. These are the words of God. Now many crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Lest, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our holy and righteous God, we come before you this morning asking for wisdom from your word. Prepare us, O God, to receive it by faith and to reform our lives by its teaching. As we gather to praise you this morning through the preaching and application of the word, let us worship you with purity of heart and of motive. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before we get into expositing our text this morning, I want to read for a moment a passage from an early church letter called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Um, Here, I'll read it for a minute. So this is, again, The Martyrdom of Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Asia uh, in Smyrna. And a great persecution was against the church at this time. He was captured by the Romans and taken to a stadium to be publicly martyred if he refused to repent of his Christianity. The letter reads like this. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they had heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, have respect to your old age and other similar things according to their custom such as, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. Christians were at this time called atheists because of their unwillingness to worship the pantheon of Roman gods. But Polycarp, gazing with stern countenance at all the multitude of the pagan in the stadium, and waving his hands toward them, said, away with the atheists. Then the proconsul urging him said, swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme? my king and my savior. Polycarp here realized the, uh, the cost of being a disciple of Christ. We read on. And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, 
since you are vainly urgent that, as you say, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretend not to know what I am, hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn the doctrines of Christianity, appoint me a day and you shall hear them. Polycarp died that day as a monument to the truth of the Christian faith. There was a period of time in the history of the Christian church where our text this morning had a more obvious and immediate application. For a significant period of time, to be a disciple of Christ would likely cost you your possessions, your family, and your life. While in most ways, being a Christian in Polycarp's day is far more difficult than in ours, I'll say this about it, they knew where the antithesis lied. If you wanted to be a disciple, you knew what that might cost you. I'm afraid that in our day, because there's no outright persecution against the American church, we've lost sight of the meaning of our passage this morning. What does it cost you to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Going back to our text, let's look at verse 25. Now many crowds, it says, were going along with him. So at this point in Jesus' public ministry, he had set his face toward Jerusalem, and as he slowly marches to the place of his death, crowds begin to gather around him as he performs miracles and heals the sick. It seems like this would be the very time if Jesus desired nothing else to gain a large following, maybe to start his megachurch, that he would shy away from those hard truths of Christianity. But it's precisely at this time that he utters these harsh and hard words to the crowds. So, with all the people following him, with all the interest that was seemingly being showed in the ministry of our Messiah, Christ decides to speak words here that will likely drive most of them away. We read on in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me may not be my disciple. Before we go on to looking at the specifics of Jesus' words... I want to point out that this isn't the first time that Jesus has addressed the crowds in such a stark way. If you'll look with me back to John, the book of John, chapter 6. You'll remember that in John 6, Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000, and the next day the crowds followed after him because they wanted more bread to eat. Jesus goes on to tell them that they don't need that food which perishes But that food which endures to eternal life, that is, his flesh. He then tells them that they cannot, spiritually speaking, come to him unless they're drawn by the Father. So John 6, starting in verse 60. Let's read. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard uh, this said, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing that his disciples were grumbling at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you here who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who it was that they would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that none can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go also? He drives the crowds away, they're all walking away, and he turns to the last people he has left, and he says, do you, want to go, do you want to go away also? He didn't soft pedal around the issues, he didn't try to trick anyone by leaving anything out, but he declared the whole counsel of God to the crowds and expected the Father to sort out the rest. There are many famous pastors and apologists in our day who, I'm afraid, don't follow Jesus' footsteps here. Jesus, standing courageously upon divine truth, spoke without worry of judgment or scorn, He looked firmly into the crowd and spoke to them about the foolishness of the Christian faith. Foolish, that is, as the world would see it. 
And yet, how often do we see Christians shrink from the clear teachings of the Word of God for fear of offending the watching world, for fear of perhaps even hurting our witness? Now, don't get me wrong. You absolutely can preach the truths of the Christian faith in a way that are abrasive and hurtful, unhelpful even. I talked about that last week. But we as Christians should never be ashamed to say, thus saith the Lord. We ought to never intentionally sidestep those issues which we know the believer will think are foolish. Jesus didn't try to trick people into following him by leaving out the difficulties of the Christian life, and neither should we. So at the outset of our discipling endeavors, we need to get this straight. We cannot be embarrassed of a single word in this book, even if it ends up driving the crowds away. Christ will not lose his sheep. We don't have to worry about that. Our job is to preach the whole counsel of God. One pastor is fond of saying, once the exegesis is hammered out, that is, once we come to know what the text is teaching, there can be for us no problem passages. If we become embarrassed at God's word, we become just as foolish as the watching world. Narrowing back in on our text, let's read again, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Last week we talked about the doctrine of Scripture, and I hope at some point in the future Pastor Nick can lead us through a study on hermeneutics, that is, the correct science of interpretation. But to help us understand the text before us, I want to introduce a principle called the analogy of faith. Uh, The Westminster Confession defines this as the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is any question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places of Scripture that speak more clearly. In other words, when we confront a difficult or confusing Scripture, like Jesus is saying you should hate your father and mother, let's say, We should understand it in light of the rest of the scriptures so we don't come to erroneous conclusions. Scriptures such as Matthew 22, 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The overwhelming testimony of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that we ought to love everyone, even up to our own enemies. So interpreting scripture with scripture we're led to recognize that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. But what, what point is he trying to make exactly? He's trying to communicate that your love for him sought to, ought to so outshine and outdo your love for everyone else that in comparison, it looks as if you hate them. Your love for Christ ought to be so consuming, so grand, that your love for all else pales in comparison. When we behold the glories of Christ Jesus, as that old song goes, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. When through his word we behold his glory, our love and devotion toward him grows so grand that he consumes and takes over our affections. After that point, when we love our parents, it's as if we love them because of our love for Christ. It's as if we love them in light of our love for Christ. Nothing in our lives moves from this moment on from an affection-shattering love for the one who redeemed us. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here in verse 26. It's as if he is saying, your love for me, your devotion to me, must surpass your love and devotion to all others such that I become your life. You're completely devoted and fixed on me, and if you aren't willing to be fixed on me in this way, he says, don't come. Don't bother coming to him. If you're looking for wealth or worldly comforts and coming to Christ, you've missed the mark entirely. We come to Christ because when the Spirit opens our eyes to see His glories and we see Him for who He is, we want nothing else but to follow Him. Preach this Christ. When you're making disciples, preach this glorious Christ. 
Preach a Christ worthy of the totality of our affections. Preach him as the one worthy of all that you have and are, because that's exactly what he requires of you. Going on in verse 27, we read, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, we have to set this in historical context. Christ is marching toward Jerusalem, and he knows that his crucifixion is right ahead of him. The crowds, however, don't know this. While Christ has given the apostles certain hints that his death was approaching, we have no indication that the crowds knew this. So imagine you're in their shoes for a moment. You've been following a man who's been healing the blind, raising the dead, and feeding the multitudes, and knowing nothing about his approaching crucifixion, he turns to you and says, If you want to follow me, bring a cross. If you want to follow me, make sure you're coming to die. Now, this certainly had a more literal first century application. Most of those who followed Christ were brutally murdered for their faith, such as Polycarp. However, the application of our text reaches us as well. How often do we read in the New Testament about the old man dying when we come to Christ? In Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live. In Romans 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. And what's Paul's conclusion? So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. When we come to Christ, we must come to die. Your old self with its lusts and evil desires is brought to the cross to die. If you aren't willing to die to self in this way, if you aren't willing to put to death the evil in you, then Christ says, don't come. You cannot be a disciple of Christ if you don't put off the old man. Of course, you can never get rid of sin completely in this life. We don't teach moral perfectionism. But if you want to come to Christ and be his disciple, you must forsake your old self. The transformation from an unbeliever to a believer is called in the scriptures a new birth. It's as if an entirely new person has arrived. Paul describes the new believer as a new creation, noting that the former things have passed away. This is what it means to take up your cross and die. No longer is your life about the gratification of your sinful flesh, but the full service of Jesus Christ, your Lord. No longer can you walk in the old paths of your sin and misery, but you're called to walk in newness of life. We can't hide this when we evangelize. We aren't trying to get a false idea into anyone's head. Coming to Christ isn't just about going to heaven one day, although it is. We don't simply preach, pray this prayer, and you'll go to heaven one day. Rather, we preach, forsake your life, Die to your body of flesh and come after Christ to live. This is the great paradox of the Christian life. It's also the great paradox of the mission of Christ. Christ came to earth to live fully as a man, but to accomplish our everlasting life, to give us eternal life, he had to die. The story of Christianity is one of life through death. In the same way, when we come to Christ for eternal life, we can only gain it through death. If we want to live, we must come to die. Something else I want to note about verse 27 is Christ is calling us to follow him continually with our crosses. By that I mean that this is not a one and done action. As Christians, we live lives of dying to self. Every day when you wake up, you have to make a conscious decision to pick up your cross yet again. Dying to self happened definitively at our conversion. That's when the old man definitively died. But scripture also speaks of the killing of the old man as an ongoing duty of the Christian life. Turn with me to Romans, the 8th chapter. Romans 8, and starting in verse 11. 
Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. Note how Paul speaks of this as an ongoing duty. In verse 13, he says, But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. This is ongoing. John Owen wrote a book around this very verse called The Mortification of Sin. In it, he asked this, Do you mortify? That's an old word for kill, by the way. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Even as a born-again, spirit-and-dwelt believer, we are in the continual battle with our flesh. And sin is trying each day to overtake us. So we have to make it our daily habit to look toward Jesus, see his glory, and decide to follow him. Pick up your cross. Be always in the process of killing sin. Not just those outward and blatant sins, in some sense those are the easiest to catch, But examine yourself daily to see what's at the root of your outward sins. You don't just wake up one day and decide to murder someone. You don't just wake up one day and decide to cheat on your wife. At root, these issues are problems of the heart. Look inward and search out those secret sins of the heart so you can root them out and mortify them so you can kill them. In the case of murder, a pretty obvious example, constantly examine yourself to see if you find in yourself the motivations of your heart toward anger and bitterness It's these seemingly small sins which when we feed and nurture every day in our hearts, thinking they aren't real problems, we feed and nurture them to the point where they grow and grow and grow and eventually manifest themselves externally. This is the duty of the Christian life, putting to death the deeds of your body. In the next section of our passage, our Lord gives us two illustrations. The first of which is the building of a tower. Let's read starting in verse 28, back in Luke 14. Luke 14, 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Lest when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Contrary to how we may want to walk with those who are evangelizing, we need to be blunt with them. We need to sit back and at the outset say, look, if you come to Christ, which, dear friend, I hope you do, But if you come to Christ, it will cost you. You need to realize what you're getting yourself into. We cannot and ought not to present the Christian faith as if it's something you add to your life so that you can have a divine buddy in the sky. You don't come to Christ first and foremost for what you get out of it. You come to Christ because you have beheld his glory. You've realized your sin and you realize that this God, whom you've been at war with your entire life, deserves your worship. That he deserves your life. There are, of course, many benefits from the believer that we gain when coming to Christ. You gain his spirit. You absolutely do gain a comfort. You do gain a peace which surpasses all understanding, and so on and so forth through the blessings go. And we should present those blessings to the unbeliever. But that's not the primary reason you come to Christ. Let's look at how the apostles preached in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts 2. Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Acts 2, 22, we read, Men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. We see that Peter preaches to the Jews and shows them their sin. This Jesus, he's saying, was the Lord of glory, and you murdered him. But God has raised him up, he goes on to say, and he now sits enthroned in heaven as king. We'd expect them to say, you know, Peter, quit being so judgmental. But the exact opposite happens. We read their response to his preaching in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need to preach Christ like the apostles did. Yes, we need to hold forth the glories that are ours in Christ, everlasting life, the resurrection of the body, and the rest. But we need to make it clear at the outset that if you desire to follow Christ, and again, I hope and pray that you do, You need to know that you have to forsake your sins. You need to know that you can't live like you used to in the vanity of your flesh, following the evil desires that are within you. Come to Christ to live, yes, but come to Christ by dying. Count the cost. But back to Christ's illustration. We need to be presenting the gospel in such a way that with our message of hope and life, we also preach these difficulties. Sit down and count the cost. It will cost you your worldly comforts. It will cost you your favorite pet sins. It will cost you, dear friend, everything. But, oh, brother, is it so utterly worth it. Come to die so that you can live. Lay out the cost. Tell them exactly what it will cost them. One of the biggest things I think you need to point out to them is that it will cost them their mission. We've talked about uh, the forsaking of sins, the forsaking of the old man. That's something negative that we need to stop doing. But on the flip side, our lives will begin be given an entirely different mission and orientation. Many of you know Henry Hutton, a dear brother, and he's been extremely helpful to me in showing practically how to evangelize, how to share the gospel with the lost. And on the topic of mission specifically, he recommends, and I agree, that when someone becomes interested in the Christian faith, you should immediately open the scriptures and take them to the Great Commission. Take them to Matthew 28. Let's go there. Matthew 28. My friend Ethan and I, uh, we had the immense privilege of leading someone to the Lord our senior year of high school. And this is the first place we took our friend. She said she wanted to come to live for Christ. And after she said she wanted to forsake her sins and follow the Lord, we opened to Matthew 28. We said, we're so glad to hear that. Now let me show you what that involves. Let me show you what it will mean to come to Christ. In Matthew 28, just before the Lord ascends into heaven, he gave all of his followers a commission. He gives the church its orders what we're to do until he returns. Let's start reading in verse 18. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Walking through this passage step by step, tell the person who desires to come to Christ, this is what life will look like. Christ says that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. That means you will no longer live for yourself. That means that what he says you will do and you will be committed to submitting yourself to his lordship. One of those commands is that we go and make disciples. Your life from here on out will be centered around making disciples. 
whether that be your children, your friends, or strangers on the street? Are you willing to make your life about making disciples? As we make disciples, we're told about the importance of baptizing them. Are you yourself willing to be baptized? Are you yourself willing to tell others who come to Christ about the importance of being baptized? Christ says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This means you need to be concerned with searching the word, learning Christ's commandments, and being diligent to teach others about them. This becomes the mission of the Christian life. Coming to Christ will cost you your sin and your mission. Make sure you count the cost. Don't be as one who starts the walk, begins to build the foundation, as we see here in our text, only to realize that the ordeal is really just too costly for you to complete. Our next illustration, the one that our Lord gives, is of a king going out to battle. Looking back at verse 31 in Luke 14, Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still afar off away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In studying these two illustrations this week, I tried to discern whether Christ was getting at two different things altogether by these, or whether he was bolstering and supporting one made point, and I think it's the latter. I think both of these illustrations are fleshing out and giving a little bit of color to the central idea of counting the cost of discipleship. One thing, however, that is slightly different in the illustrations is that the one before us now highlights the violence of the Christian life. It seems strange to us to speak of the Christian life as one of violence, But Christians throughout all ages have realized this. I've been reading a book by Thomas Watson. Its title is this, Heaven Taken by Storm, showing the holy violence a Christian is to put forward in the pursuit after glory. We don't tend to think about the Christian life like this. The Christian life is is not one of complacency or laziness. Rather, the Christian is to put forward a holy violence in the pursuit after glory. This life is a battle, and we have to be engaged in spiritual warfare. At the outset, we need to count the cost of this battle. Will we be able to win? The conclusion Jesus draws in verse 33, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. We need to walk a very careful line with this passage. Some preach this verse in a way that the gospel becomes contradictory to what the rest of the scriptures say about money and wealth. Proverbs says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. We're to be good stewards of our money. We see the ideal woman in Proverbs 31 turning a profit on the work of her household. Making up and storing money is indeed a good thing. On the other hand, however, some people ignore this verse so as to empty empty it of any input it might have toward the topic of wealth. I believe Christ is saying here in verse 33 the same thing he's saying back in 26 about hating father, mother, sister, and brother. Christ is calling the disciples not to give away every dime and dollar that they have to charitable organizations, but Christ is emphasizing that nothing belongs to you anymore. Your family, your possessions, and even your own life is now completely and utterly at the Lord's disposal. The money you have is no longer yours, so use it to the service of the Lord. Christ calls you to be faithful with what you've been given. So yes, be overwhelmingly charitable. Give freely and without expectation of return. The money and possessions you own are no longer your own. Use them in service of the Lord. But this doesn't mean you need to become homeless or sell the clothes off your back. 
It does mean that Christ expects you to use every single bit of your life and possessions at his service. He's answering the question we've been asking this whole time, what does it cost to be a disciple of Christ? The answer, of course, is everything. It will cost you your time, your money, your mission, your favorite pet sins, your family, and even your own life. And if you don't want to surrender all of it to Christ, he says, don't bother coming. Verse 34. Therefore, salt is good. But even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. This statement from Jesus is reminiscent of what he said back in the Sermon on the Mount, of course, in Matthew 5. There he calls all believers the salt of the earth. Salt, specifically in the ancient world, had two primary functions. The first would be to season food, and the second would be to act as a preservative. But given the fact that our text speaks of salt becoming tasteless, Christ is most likely focusing on the salt's role as a seasoning. But either way, Christ's main point is this. Salt has a particular function. In this case, it's to make the food taste better. But if the salt loses its taste or its ability to be used as a seasoning, then it's worthless. It's good for nothing. And in the same way, Christ is saying, believers are called for a certain purpose. Everything we've talked about thus far, but the reason we've been told to count the cost is so that we don't come after Christ, follow him for a time, and then forsake our walk because we didn't realize what it would cost us. If we were to do that, We would be like the salt in our text, becoming tasteless, becoming worthless. We would be forsaking our purpose. And Christ says that we would be good for absolutely nothing. We won't even be good enough for the manure pile. Yes, he says. We'll simply be cast aside and thrown out. Christ is an enemy of lukewarm Christianity. He despises and abhors men who claim his name without departing from iniquity, without living fully the Christian life. We see something similar in Revelation 3. Revelation 3.14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, this is what the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says, I know your deeds, that you were neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Christ, again, wants all of us. He wants us to forsake all for his name, and he will accept nothing less. Matthew Henry wrote this, lukewarmness or indifference in religion is the worst attitude in the world. If religion is worth anything, it's worth everything. Here is no room for neutrality. Christ expects that men should declare themselves in earnest either for him or against him. This is a hard saying. So hard, I'm sure, that many in the crowds following Jesus walked away. I'm sure for many, they counted the cost and decided that it wasn't worth it. So why, O Christian, are you here? Why are you here when the costs are so high? And what do you say, what would you say, to the person coming to be a disciple who asks you the same question? Why should I come to Christ when the costs are so utterly high? I think for every born-again believer in this room, there can only be one answer. Because we have seen his glory and realized that all that I have, all else that I desire in this life is worthless when compared to the priceless gem that is the Son of God. We have to answer in this way. I'm here now. I've forsaken all for Christ. I live every day as a soldier battling through the Christian life because he is so utterly worth it. Show them the glory of the gospel. Show them Christ's glories through the pages of scripture. 
Because they're right. For a natural man, it would seem absolutely foolish to forsake all that they have, to forsake their life's desires, to follow some carpenter from Bethlehem. But show them what they're missing. Lead them chapter and verse through the gospel. God himself had pity on depraved sinners like you and me by becoming flesh. Christ Jesus is your creator in the flesh. He came to save sinners from their transgressions of his law by living a perfect life and offering his status of perfect obedience to you by faith. If you will but come to him, you will find him to be a perfect savior. Having died, he's now surely alive and he's seated at the right hand of God, waiting for that appointed day at which time he will judge the secrets of men by his gospel. Plead with them, O sinner. I pray you find, I find, your, you find yourself in him before that day comes. And it's only in this light, in light of a Christ who is altogether lovely, altogether glorious, that this cost calculation makes sense. But if they come to Christ, and how we pray that they do, if they come to Christ, they will say with Paul, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So can I exhort you who are here, you who are Christians, those who are already his disciples, those of you who may be weak and weary in the faith as you face the cruelties of life, look to the glories of Christ. When you look at him, you'll start to remember why you decided to pay the price, why you thought it was worth giving up everything for his name in the first place, because he is so worth it. That's all I have. Let's pray. O merciful Savior, we praise you this morning for the high calling we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your spirit. Thank you for giving us a sight of the glories of Jesus Christ. Help us every day to fix our eyes upon him, to trust in him, and to rejoice in him. Lord, let the world see the glories of Jesus Christ. Send out... Send us out as messengers of the good news, telling men where to find refuge from the wrath to come. In your word you promise, O Lord, that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to you, and that the families of the nations will worship before you. Hasten that day. We ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.